You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Good morning. Thanks for coming, even in the, in the cold. This is the hearty bunch here, huh? You guys actually, there's a couple indicators if it's really cold or not, if, if the roads are really bad or not, if, if our BFC pa- uh, matriarchs, Vera and Wanda, if they're here, you should really be here, right? And, and Evan, Evan, are you, stand up, are you, are you wearing, if Evan ever wears pants, then it's too cold, but he... He doesn't own a pair of pants, so if he actually goes out and buys some, um, then you know it's cold. But otherwise, you should be here. No no problems at all. Let's pray together as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your presence in our lives. Um, We thank you for all of your divine attributes that we've been learning about, Lord, whether on a Sunday morning or in our uh, studies throughout the week, Lord, we've been learning more about you. And I pray, Lord, for all of us here that you would help us to continue to see you more clearly as you reveal yourself to us in the scriptures, that you would be magnified in our life and all the other problems and struggles and issues and dangers in this world would continue to take their place as much smaller in our view. Because you are God, because you love us, because you sent your son to redeem us, to, to save us from our sin, to make a people for yourself, because you build your church, you sanctify your church, and Lord, because you are returning to make all things new, and that we get eternity, we get to spend eternity with you, Lord, because of all those things, we can rest this morning. We can rest under your sovereign care. So thank you for your divine sovereignty, that it brings us peace, it should cause us to praise, and I ask that you would help us with that this morning as we open your word and continue to learn more about who you are, and that you will not share your glory with anyone. Help us to take that to heart, Lord, not just to learn and to nod our heads, Father, but to change everything that we do in light of it, how we live our lives, what are priorities for us. So, Father, we give ourselves to you fully. We thank you for this, um, this place where we can come that's um, warm and protected from the elements, where we can sit and we can hear, where we can apply and obey, where we can fellowship. And ultimately, we do all these things for your glory, and we do them because of your Son, in whose name we pray right now. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 11. So if you would turn there with me. We have been in the series in Exodus, walking through recently the 10 plagues, watching the God of Israel, the great I Am, um, introduce himself to the world, to not only his own people, as he's he's called them to himself, and he's delivering them out of bondage from Egypt, uh, but he's showing himself uh, to the Egyptians as well, to those who have their own gods, who have come up against the God of Israel who claim to be sovereign in and of themselves, and God is showing them that they are not, and that only he is holy, only he deserves glory. So we've been watching God step through these plagues with a purpose to show his power. He wants to display his power, and he has the right to do that. He has the right to show everyone who he is, even if it's causing pain and even death to those who are his enemies. So we've been walking through this, and hopefully you've been uh, walking with us, and hopefully in your studies, I know the women's studies are looking at the attributes of God. Hopefully you've been really learning and growing in your understanding of who this, this, this amazing great I am is. Who is this God, this self-existent one, this self-sufficient one? He has no beginning, he has no end, right? The scriptures say that uh, God says of himself, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. God really means that, right? It's not just a fun Christian bumper sticker or bookmark that we put. It's, he really means it. There's, there's no other. There's none like him. 
For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. When God speaks, speaks with complete and utter authority over everything. And this is a good thing because he's a good God, right? He's omniscient, omnipotent. He's omnipresent. So he he knows everything. He's all powerful. He's everywhere and he's sovereign. We've been talking a lot about the sovereignty of God, right? That he he has the right and the authority and the power to do whatever he pleases, And we have to separate out our human definition of people that are in control, who think they're sovereign, right? Who wield their power and lord it over people and cause chaos and disruption and they're doing it for self-centered gain. That's, That's not who he is. He's completely sovereign and he's completely good. He is holy. He's perfect in every way. He's faithful. He's loving. He's, he's a God of justice and mercy and grace and goodness. And all of these attributes of God are all being expressed at the same time, no matter what he's doing. He doesn't put aside, well, I need a little more, I need a little extra power over here for some justice, so I'm going to put mercy away and save some energy. Right? He doesn't do that. It's all, it's all together. It's part of who he is. He's one. And when he manifests all of these attributes, he is, he's he's bringing attention to himself. He's glorifying himself. We are to bring him glory by acknowledging who he is and all that he does. The problem that we have um, still, even, even as we sin, even as believers and saints who still sin in this world, is um, we struggle with wanting the glory for ourselves, with wanting just a little piece of that. God, I glorify you. You're awesome. You're great. And I, I worship you. And in the next moment, we're we're frustrated or angry that someone's not giving us attention, that we're not getting credit for something. God's wiping that off the, off the table here when he's talking about who he is in, the, in light of this story. So hopefully we're gaining an appreciation for all that he is. And then as we talk today about his divine justice continuing, we will have a, a better perspective that God's justice is holy justice, as we've talked about. It's perfect justice that we don't need to question everything he does. It's okay to ask questions. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to wrestle a little bit. But ultimately, we have to trust him even when we don't understand. And we have to worship him because he's worthy of that. We begin to understand that and change how we live. It's, gonna, it's, gonna, it's, it's remarkable how your life in the word becomes more rich because you're, you're seeing God for who he is. You're not just looking for the things that you want out of scripture, but you want to know him. And he will reveal himself. He's faithful to do that. And so in in chapter 11, we come to the the final plague. And chapter 11 is really just the threat of the final plague. We have seen God wield his power over Egypt in a number of ways. And remember, he's not just judging Egypt for their sin. They have held his people, his firstborn son, for over 400 years in bitter, harsh slavery. It was Pharaoh's idea to kill all the males of the Hebrews. He wanted them gone because they were a threat to him. So remember, he talked to the midwives first. When you go and deliver the child, if it's a boy, kill the boy. And the midwives wouldn't do that. They honored the Lord, and the Lord blessed them. And so his next, he decided just to kind of go public with this and tell everyone, all the Egyptians, any males born to the Hebrews need to be drowned in the Nile. Kill them. He was willing to commit complete genocide. It's... We just kind of read over it as one line, but that was pretty significant. And this is God's firstborn son. This is, this, these are his people, the one, those that he loves. And so it would be only right for God to bring justice to this man and to these people who have done this. And so he has done that with, with all the, the previous nine plagues. And thank you to Scott Lamb and thanks to Scott Barbie for, for preaching last week on the, on the plague of darkness. And we're going to pick up kind of where Scott left off in uh, chapter 10, verse 27, because the, the, it kind of goes into chapter 11. The conversation that Moses is having um, isn't quite completed yet. So uh, we'll look at uh, chapter 10, verse 27, and then we'll read through chapter 11. It says, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day that you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask 
every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt." such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these, your servants, shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. A couple of things from this text that we'll talk about this morning related to divine justice continuing and under the really the umbrella of God's providence and his sovereignty and all these things. Um... We're going to look at how God plundered the Egyptians to provide for Israel, but also that those who belong to God, who are chosen by God, will be protected by God. God provides and God protects. What we see at the end of chapter 27, and um, if you're like me, just I just like I love the interactions here, and I'm like like to think about how are they talking to one another and why are they saying what they're saying and. Um, just knowing the kind of the history of Moses and how he interacts with people. Um, you can see he was, he was getting very angry at this interaction. Uh, at the end of verse 27, God hard, hardens Pharaoh's heart again. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this, but knowing that God is good, that he is just, that he is, he is completely, utterly holy in everything that he does, he's perfect in everything that he does, he keeps commanding Pharaoh, let my people go. And yet he hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will not let his people go. Why? Because he wants to show his power. He wants to manifest all of his miracles and his wonders amongst the people. He wants to show them who he is. And he's using Pharaoh as an instrument of this. And we might think that's not fair, but we know if God is perfect, that it's completely fair. We just don't understand it. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Then Pharaoh said, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on this day, you shall, on the day you see my face, you shall die. Now, this might just seem like a little smack talk, you know, you know, if I ever see you again, and Moses is like, yeah, whatever, yeah, if I see your face, and they're just, just throwing some insults at each other before they walk out the door. That's what we might do, right? And Moses is obviously angry, and we know that this is a continuation, that Moses is talking to Pharaoh because he's still in his presence, because he's sharing about the threat of the last plague. And he says in verse 8 of chapter 11, and these, your servants, Pharaoh's servants, will come down. And then he went out of Pharaoh in hot anger. So even after Pharaoh said, get out of my face, if, I see, if you see my face again, you're going to die. Moses stayed enough just to give him this last warning, this last threat. And then he left in, in extreme anger. So this was a very contentious exchange. But what Pharaoh is saying here, whether he realizes it or not, in his arrogance, in his and his own sovereign will in his mind is that if you see my face again, you're going to die. I have the keys to your life and to your death. I'm in charge of death here, not you, Moses. We see in Exodus 33, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, show me your glory. And God relented to a point and showed him his back and gave him provisions for how God could pass by him. But, but God said, you can't see my face. If you were to see my face, you would not live any longer. No one can see my face and live. No one can see the face of God and live. He's too holy. He's too perfect. And in some regards, Pharaoh here is saying, I'm like God. And if you see my face again, you're going to die. So this is the last final showdown, the last challenge, right? The, the, on the streets of the, the small mining town, the, the, the high noon, Right, Pharaoh stepping up and, and, and pulling his, his coat aside and kind of making his last final challenge to this man of God, this Moses. And Moses is not happy about that. As you say, I will not see your face again. And then he gives the, the last 
the warning of the last plague, and he leaves in hot anger. He was very angry about that whole situation. But Pharaoh's setting himself up as a god, as we know, but that he has the keys of life and death. And God's going to show that he, the God of Israel, is the only one who has the power over life and death. Before he does that, we're reminded of his provision for his people. Because this next plague is going to cause such a cry in the entire country of Egypt that they're going to force them out. They're not going to want to deal with them anymore. They have favor in the eyes in the sight of the Egyptians, and they have favor in the sight of Pharaoh's servants. We see that there's no favor in the sight of Pharaoh, but his servants and of the people. Why? Are some of them coming to understand who this God is? We know that there's a great multitude that leaves in the Exodus, so perhaps there are some who are being saved, who are understanding who this God is. But part of this greatness in the eyes of of Egypt um, and the, for, for the Israelites and for Moses is the fact that God's done all these amazing things. There's a fear, there's a reverence that's being, that's kind of bubbling up here. They're seeing who he is. They don't want to die. They want them to leave. So in some respects, when they ask their neighbor for all their silver and gold jewelry, of course God's given them favor. They just want them to go, right? Yes, please take whatever you want and please just go. They're so tired of being beat down. All of their economy is done. Their cattle, their livestock is dead. Some of their servants, some of their slaves have been killed in the hailstorm. They are wiped out. It's been a decreation event of Egypt, taking away everything from them. And so when they ask for the, the last of their silver and their gold and their clothes, of course they relent and they give. And this is something God told them that they would do, and, and they're, so they're going to do it, and God's reminding them, make sure you ask. You don't have to force you don't have to beg, you just have to ask and they will do it because God's giving them favor. God is protecting them. God is plundering Egypt. And we know that this is a provision for them because later on when they build the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenants, they are going to be contributing some of these fine metals to the, to the production to make these things. So it's a, it's a way, it's amazing how God gives to us so that we have what we need to give back to him, right? You saw on the screen, we, we have these missionary moments every, every month and, and we are giving to these initiatives around the world and in our community and locally because we believe that God's doing a work and we want to partner with that. And part of our way of partnering with things is to physically be there and to serve, but the other way is to provide finances and, and help and resources. And we can do that because God gives us everything. And we're just giving back a little bit of what he's given us. We contribute. And he, it's an amazing picture, right? as if he needs anything from us. God is so good and he's so sovereign that he gives you everything you need so that you can worship him and give back. It's amazing. The other thing they're doing is they're taking away all of their, their raw materials to create other gods from Egypt, right? As I was reading that, and I was reading um, Psalm 135, and we read this a few weeks ago. I'll, I'll read part of 135 here as it's part of our context. Starting in verse six, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. And we just need to keep getting that in our minds and understanding this is a God who, is, who does whatever he pleases. And whatever he pleases is good. And it's especially good for us, those who love him, called according to his purposes. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth and the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain. Who, and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast. Who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. This is what God's after, his name, his renown. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So we're seeing this praise to this God that his name would endure forever, that he would have great renown throughout all the ages. And we see that the Lord 
not only judges the nations, and part of that is his expression of power, and he gets glory for that, but he also vindicates his people. He has compassion on his servants. And then the idols of the nations are silver and gold. God's, in a sense, removing the rest of the idols, right? What represents the idols, all this raw material, he's taking it all with his people. And at the same time, vindicating his people. He's, if you will, paying them back. All of the plunder that Egypt loses here, that Egypt had gained over the years, was on the backs of the slavery of God's people. They, they got wealthy. They gained everything on the backs of God's people. God is giving it back. God is a God of justice. And at the same time, he's sending a message, there is no one like me. Stop making these ridiculous little trinkets out of silver and gold. They're nothing. They can't speak. You just become like them. There's nothing in that. So God's providing his favor. He's plundering. He's providing for his people as they leave Egypt. So not only does God provide for Israel, and great, remember, there's a great inheritance that's coming too. They didn't have a land of, of their own. Right? They were made slaves in a land that was not their home, and God's taking them to the promised land. There's a great promise coming. And he will, he will give the heritage of other nations to his people. They, everything that these other nations have built, all their infrastructure, all of their build, everything, he's going to hand it to his people. So God is a God of justice. He's sovereign in those things. But the second thing is that those who belong to God, those who are chosen by God, will be protected by God. And we see that in the second section here with the actual threat. So Moses is still in Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh said, get out of my face. Moses says, no, you get out of my face, right? And they went back and forth. Moses is still there. He's really upset. He's not happy. And then he gives this final threat. Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, the, the prince of Egypt, who was revered by his people. Remember, they have godlike status even to the firstborn of the slave girl behind the handmill, so the poorest of the poor and everyone in between. All of the firstborn will be taken, will be killed instantly. And the estimates of Egypt around that time are around three or four million people with most households having 10 to 20 people in them. So you're looking at at least 100 to 200,000 firstborn dead. Why? How is this justice? Well, we... If we look back, Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. This was always God's plan. It wasn't just nine plagues or seven plagues or five. God wasn't just counting down from 10 like parents do, hoping that when you get to one or maybe two, the kid will start to relent right, and give in because we know that delayed obedience is just disobedience, right? But we, we have all used that tactic, even though we said we never would. Instead of just do it now, it's 10, 9, 8, right? That's, God's not doing that. There's a purpose in all 10 of these. There's a, there's a divine plan and the counsel of his eternal will to show his power using Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And so he hardens Pharaoh's heart again and again. Even as Pharaoh hardened his own heart, Pharaoh was innocent of nothing. He's completely responsible for his actions. And in God's design, uh, divine sovereignty, God is completely responsible for what's taking place. It is his design. It is his purpose to use the sin of Pharaoh. Verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God warned Pharaoh. He told him what would happen. And yet he hardened his heart so that it would happen. Those of us who have children, who have family members who we love or people that we're close to, if someone were to do something, to, I mean, we, as, as parents, most of us have had that thought of what, what if, right? We, we don't want to go there. We don't want to really think about it. But we occasionally have that moment where we're, where we're worried, we're concerned, we're, we struggle with the thought of the loss of someone that we love, especially a son or a daughter. And some of us here have lost sons and daughters. And the heartache and the, to have your son or daughter held captive for over 400 years, to be brutally used in slavery, 
for the purposes of an evil nation who hate you. There's a lot of injustice going on here for a long time. God is showing his divine mercy at the same time as he's about to bring his justice. He's been patient for a very long time. He has given, in all of these plagues, you might think, well, why can't he just stop at the first one? Why didn't he just wipe out? He already talked about that. He said he could have. He could have snapped his fingers. They're done. But so that he might display his power, he allowed these to continue. His name is that important to him. His name needs to be that important to us. Too often, we are the most important people in our world, right? How much time do you spend in front of a mirror? When you look at pictures and photographs of, of family or events, who do you look at first? <laughs> who do you focus on? Do I look good? Do I, let me try this way, right? We're so focused on self. God wants us to be focused on him. This is, this is really important to him, and he's worth it. He's worthy of that worship. We bow down to way too many things. And God, in his divine wisdom, before the foundations of the world, he has determined that this would be the way through Egypt, through Pharaoh, that he would make a people for himself, that he would deliver those people for his glory. And he's got a plan for all those things. We can't fully understand that. But in God's divine justice, this great cry throughout all the land of Egypt was retribution for the great cry from his people of 400 years of harsh slavery. How many people of his had died in that slavery condition? How many of his people were beaten and whipped to the point where they, were, they passed out and bled to death on the ground alone? How many people starved to death? God's people still grew in number, but they cried out in their suffering, and God heard them. And so now Egypt, who is not innocent at all, they will cry out like they've never cried out before. This is God's justice. This shows you the depth of the hatred for sin that God has. That sin is such an affront to him that it must be punished. It must be dealt with. The wages of sin is death. He can't just walk past it. And so it shows you the immense importance and the incredible value and the amazing sacrifice of Jesus Christ to send his only son to die on a cross to take away our sins. Do you sit and consider the cross? Do you, when you read God's word, do you consider this great act that God did to save you because he loved you? He wants to protect you from his own wrath, from his own justice. And so he put it all on his son that if you would just believe in him, you would have eternal life. That's the gift of the gospel to us. That's the gift of Jesus Christ, the gift of faith. And yet at the very same time, as, as much as this is a real invitation for us to come to him, Jesus says, come to me, all you heavy or, or weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Come to me, all those who are thirsty, and I will give you, to... Jesus wants us to come to him. At the same time, God is in control of who comes to him. Because if we look at this text, we're seeing that Pharaoh, even if he wanted to, which he doesn't want to, but in some mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, he is fully responsible for his sin. He's hardening his own heart, and God is also hardening his heart in judgment. And Pharaoh will die in his sins. He will not be saved. But God has chosen a people to be saved. Is that fair? How does that work? Why did Israel get chosen and not Egypt? Have you ever thought about flipping that around? We don't because it's not in God's word, but if you just consider the fact, well, why did he choose Israel? What, what made them so special? Well, we know that it was nothing in and of themselves. In Deuteronomy 7, we see this in, uh, in the text in uh, verse 6. God says, for you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and, a redeemed, and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps his covenant and with steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And he repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. Well, how does that work? If, 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 if Egypt and Pharaoh hate God, but God made them hate him by continuing with the plagues and hardening Pharaoh's heart over and over again, is it fair that he's destroying them? 
Is this fair? This is why we've been talking about the doctrine of God and who he is. You have to start from who, from that place. You have to start about who is God, not just what do you think is fair. Otherwise, we try to humanize God. We try to make him into our likeness. That's idolatry. We've already learned that. And so when we can't, we can't reconcile something, when we can't reconcile God's sovereignty, his complete control, he does whatever he pleases, but he's perfect and holy when he does it. But when we can't reconcile his sovereignty and human responsibility, they don't seem to go together, then we have a problem because we need to fix everything, right? We need to take the, you ever seen the kids play with a little toy and there's the different shaped blocks and they try to fit them in the, in the holes that match the shape. So you take the square peg and you put it in the square, square hole. And then there's the kid who's always grabbing the square peg and trying to get it in the, in the round hole, but it doesn't fit, does it? And they're slamming it, and they're, they're sucking on it because they're, they're trying to get this thing in there. They can't do it. Right? Ultimately, they just have to kind of leave it there and leave it be and go do something else and destroy some other corner of the house, right? But that's what we kind of do. I don't know if it's a great analogy, but it's the one that came to mind. I don't, we, we, we have this square peg of God's sovereignty. We have this round hole of human responsibility, and we just, it's, we just got to make it fit, right? And so if, if the square peg doesn't fit, then we got to shave it down. We got to redefine it. We got to redefine God's words when it comes to election and predestination. These words are in the scriptures. We're afraid of them because we don't understand them fully. The doctrine of election, which is essentially what God is teaching them here when he says, um, when he's making his distinction yet again, but a dog shall... Uh, not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He's making a distinction. He's protecting his people from his wrath. And we'll talk about the Passover next week. But the people of Egypt will not be protected. They do not belong to him. He has not chosen them. But, but that doesn't, that's not fair, God. That doesn't work, right? Who determines what's fair? The one who created everything or the creation who screwed up everything? Who determines what's fair? How do we, are, are you, were you there in the council of God's will and the Trinitarian council at the beginning of time before the foundations of the earth? No, you weren't. But God, I have all these questions. How, how, can, how, can, how can you expect this? If, like, who can resist your will, right? If, if it's your will that this person... Um, be your enemy and die in their sins, then who can, then, then what's, what's the point, Lord? And what, why are we here? And, and this doesn't make any sense. Election, divine election, God's choosing of, is not meant to divide us. It's meant to unite us as, as his people. We're, we're supposed to be praising him for this. It's supposed to humble us because why? Because we didn't earn this ourselves. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It's, we didn't do anything. It's a gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. This is something that we use and we talk about, and yet we don't fully understand it. And so we just kind of skip over the words that we don't like. Paul, the reason I bring this up is because this hardening of Pharaoh's heart is something that Paul uses to help define God's sovereign choice in Romans chapter 9. And this is nothing for us to be afraid of. This is nothing for us to be divided over. We just have to be humble enough to understand that we can't figure it out completely. How does God choose? How does God elect? How does he predestine? How does he make that determination? Ultimately, all have fallen, right? Short of the glory of God, we've all sinned. No one is good. We know that. The scriptures tell us that. We are dead in our trespasses, dead in our sins. We, we can't save ourselves. If I came up to you and said, could, were you able to save yourself to become a Christian? No. Who saved you? Jesus saved me. Right. God's the one that saves. God's the one that pursues. He's the one that makes this happen. He's the one that initiates. We don't. And Paul, being someone who understood this deeply because he was a blasphemer, he was a murderer, right? He, he persecuted the church to a great degree. Was he, was he seeking God? Was he, did he go to a seeker service because he just had some questions about Christ and wanted to know? I'm just a little curious, so I'm going to go to one of these gatherings and see what these guys are doing. and how they're. No, he was getting warrants to kick down doors to put people in prison for worshiping God. He had no desire, and yet on the road to the mountain, Jesus met him there. God did that. God did the work. God saved Paul. 
But that does not make Paul any less of a human being. It does not make him a puppet or a robot. He is a full person. He was fully responsible. It is real, genuine faith. God is not disingenuous here. It's just a mystery that we don't fully get. God has revealed many things to us. There is a secret will, a hidden will that he does not reveal to us. We don't, we don't understand everything. My sons, they ask me for things, they, or I, I, I give them something I want them to do, or we're going somewhere. Whatever I decide, if I make a decision and they ask why, I'm pleased to tell my sons generally why at times, if I have time to do that. But I can't tell them everything about my decision-making. My decision-making is, is a whole, is years and years of experiences, right? And personality and preferences and all kinds of things. I'm making decisions. I don't even realize all the whys myself. I'm not going to sit there and try to outline every reason why we're going to do this thing. Sometimes they just have to trust me because why? Because hopefully I'm a good father. They've got a relationship with me. They know that I'm doing things for their best interest, that I love them so they can trust me. They don't have to know every little piece of my decision. And in the same way, we can't understand fully everything God does. In Romans 8, we, we'll, we'll start a little bit here in Romans 8 and uh, move into 9, but um, 8.28. And we read some of this when it came to uh, the story of Joseph. Uh, God meant it for good. Um, kind of a, a parallel uh, principle here. And we know that for those who, got, who love God, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's good. Remember, God meant it for good. Everything that Joseph went through, he, might have, he probably had a lot of questions too. How was this fair? Why did you do this, God? What are you doing? Why? We didn't hear any of those complaints from Joseph, but those would be natural questions. Ultimately, God meant it for good, even if he didn't spell it out for him. And we love this verse, and we hold tight to this verse, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, so there's a calling component here, according to his purpose. And he continues on in his thought. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? This was, Paul didn't read, Paul didn't write this, thinking through this as he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Spirit, stop and say, what do we say to these things? I don't like that. That doesn't, Lord, I don't like this. I don't like the words you gave me here. Right? He didn't stop and consider that and then start erasing and changing things. To, you guys have all done that. You've written an email, and the first round is a Moses-like hot anger email, and then you have to go back and, well, let's change that word, and let's delete that, and let's just not send anything right now. Right? We, we have some wisdom, and <laughs> Paul didn't do that. He didn't get uncomfortable with this. He was praising God for this. What can we say? If God's for you, who can be against you? That's a praise, and Paul knew he was, he was going to die in his ignorance and his unbelief, and God had patience with him, and God saved him. He doesn't know why God saved him versus someone else. And Paul's heart here, as he, as he continues to talk about Israel, is that others would be saved. He, he would rather, he'd rather be cursed and have everyone else saved because he loves people, and he wants them to be saved as well. But he's also, he knows that this is God's purpose, and God is doing something, and God's bigger than him, higher than him. His thoughts are higher than him. His ways are higher than him. He shouldn't question everything that's going on. He should pray. God for this. And if God's for me, if God sent his son to die for me, God's not going to let anything happen to me. He's going to provide for me. He's going to protect me. Always. There's praise in that. And yet we read that and we're like, well, I don't like that. I can't get that peg in the hole and this, this stinks and this church stinks because I can't get the, they shouldn't be talking about this. We, we don't talk about foreknowledge and predestination and election. Those are not happy words. It's cold out, making me warm, making me happy about things. If you're, if you're in this room today and you believe in Jesus Christ and you have a saving faith and you, you walk with him and you belong to him and you're part of God's family, you should be, you should be very warm as it relates to that. You should, be very, you should be praising God for these words, that he loved you, that he saved you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody can. If, if God is for Israel, Egypt cannot be against them. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If he's a sovereign God, if he's, we, we enjoy his sovereignty when it benefits us. But as soon as it crosses the plane of our understanding and, and we don't quite get it anymore, then we have a problem with it instead of just submitting to God. Spurgeon had a great quote about this that I hold on to. Spurgeon was once asked how he could reconcile the apparent contradiction between these two truths. Charles Spurgeon replied, I never have to reconcile friends. He saw them as friends. They're both in scripture. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility have never had a falling out with each other. (laughs) I love that. I do not need to reconcile what God has joined together. He confessed, where these two truths meet, I do not know, nor do I want to know. They do not puzzle me since I have given up my mind to believing them both. He has submitted himself under the authority of the scriptures. They're both in here. We are fully responsible. We are, we are fully human. We are, we are full persons. We are not robots. God is not some sadistic puppeteer up there. And yet in God's sovereignty, he does choose. And he does it with complete perfection. They're both in here. And so what happens when we can't reconcile something, when we can't find a way to get something to work, then we just pick one side, typically. Because one side makes sense. And so we find the scriptures that fit what we understand or what makes us feel okay, and we, we stick with that. I've had people who, when we've had these discussions about divine election, they, they, they'll literally send me a list of all of the scripture related to whatever side they believe in. And then the other person will send me this, all the scripture on the other side. I'm like, I don't, they're both in there. So how, how are you just picking one side here? Well, because it doesn't make sense and we want it to. And I get that. When I was a f- first a believer in, in college um, and started to learn some of these things, God is gracious. He doesn't fire hose you and give you everything or too much that you can handle. When, when my discipler, we were walking through some of this and I started reading some of these words, I didn't like that at all. That didn't, that didn't work for me. I was very upset. I actually, there was a couple of weeks where I didn't even know what to do anymore. This God who I thought I knew, he's, he's totally different. He's not the God that I want to serve. Is this really a God that I want to serve? But isn't that the problem? I, I made God into my own image and a God that I could like and that I could follow And now God is saying, well, this is who I am. And you can't fully understand it, but it's true. Well, I don't know if I can take that. That's that's, that's a tough one, right? So we have a decision to make when we read these texts. We can either go back and try to form God back into something that's palatable for us, or we can submit ourselves to this. Spurgeon said it, they do not puzzle me since I have given up my mind to believing them both. He finally submitted to God's truth. I'm fully responsible and yet I'm fully chosen by God. I don't get it. I will praise him for it, just as Paul did. And Paul, later in chapter 9 here, coming back to to our connection to Pharaoh about God's sovereign choice, chapter 9, verse 11, as he was um, expounding on this and teaching about this to the Roman church, it says, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And here's Paul asking the questions that we ask. I love this. He, he asks these questions. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Just like I will love who I love. He he chose Israel for no reason except that he loved them. Well, Lord, why did you choose me? Because I loved you. Why did you love me? Because I loved you. Well, that doesn't make any sense. I know. It doesn't have to make sense to you. It makes sense to me, right? Enjoy it. (laughs) Worship him for it. So then it depends not on human will or exertion. And here's the other problem is that we're so concerned with human will. Most of the scriptures are concerned with God's will. What is God doing? Why is he doing it? What does he want to accomplish? We're so concerned about what we want. 
what we want to accomplish. That's part of the problem. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And then Paul anticipates another question, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? That's the, that's the, I, I imagine Spurgeon struggling through this, reading through this, considering this, and others, and, and our other church fathers, and um, wondering about this, and then you just come to the point, but who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? You have to relent. That's God's answer to you who want to figure this puzzle out, who want to get that peg, and this is his answer to you. Who are you to question God? God created everything. Would we want a God who creates everything but is not in control of everything? Does that bring you any sense of peace at all? No. And because we know his attributes, because we know he is perfect in every way, that his justice, his mercy, his righteousness, he is good, he is faithful, he is loving, because he is all these things, and he's all those things perfectly all the time, we can trust him and say, Lord, I don't understand. And Lord, you're right. Forgive me for asking these questions with a sense of entitlement, as if you owe me a response. Forgive me for creating my own version of you that is, that is more helpful for me to walk in this world. Lord, please help me with this. Please give me peace because I don't have it. I don't like this. It doesn't make sense to me. Why am I saved and this person is not? But Lord, you know, and you, you know, and Jesus knows. Jesus himself said, no one can come to him unless the Father grants it, unless the Father draws him. And yet Jesus was offering his life and people to come to him without any reservation, without any disingenuousness. So it's not the question of trying to figure all this out, but if you don't know Jesus and you understand because of the scriptures and the hearing of the word that you are a sinner and that you can't save yourself and that the wages of sin is death and that without, without someone to save you, without someone to pay for your sins, you're going to pay for them for eternity in hell. That's what the Bible says. Jesus talked about hell. Why? Because he loves people. And if you realize that and you repent of your sin, you turn and agree with God because of your sin, you repent. And by faith, genuine faith, that is a gift of God, that is a mystery, but a gift of faith. If you have faith in Jesus Christ and you believe in him, God promises you will have eternal life. And you will have the promised Holy Spirit indwelling you. He will sanctify you. He will make you like his son. And you will spend eternity with God forever. It's a beautiful promise. And it's nothing for us to be frustrated about as far as how that happens. If any of us think back to our conversion when we gave our life to Christ, was there any, were you sitting there with a bunch of papers trying to figure out which side you're on and I'm not sure, is God electing me right now? God, are you electing me? Did you put the, the, the ballot in the box? Is, 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 did that one count? Right? Was my, are we sitting there and trying to figure all this out or are we just in the midst of God revealing our sin and we are broken and we need a savior? And with a tearful confession, we repent and we believe in this Jesus who died on the cross for us. And there's this beautiful picture of salvation. God's offering to us and we accept it. That's all that matters here. The church fights so much over, spend time in the word and study. You will see that God has chosen his people. These words are in there. They're not to be ignored because we are to praise him. He is to receive glory. When you ignore those words, you want glory for yourself. You want credit for what you have done. That's not okay. There's, there's no provision for that in scripture. Submit yourself to his word and have, have patience with yourself too. You're not going to understand. It's going to be frustrating. Submit that to the Lord. Go back to him in prayer. He is so faithful to bring you peace. After those two weeks of not knowing what to do with, with this information, not knowing, to, what do I do with this God? This doesn't make any sense to me. You know what he did? He gave me peace. He let me move on. He began to open up other parts of scripture. You know why? Because I was teachable. I was willing to listen. I was willing to walk in, in a, not understanding everything. And it took years. It was years later. Because what, what do you do then? If you have peace, well, I still want to figure it out. I still want to talk to other people. And I still want to read books and try to figure out how this works and how I can live within light of this. And 
It took years until I became a real student of God's word and began to study and, and submit and listen. And, and then this kind of opened up for me, and I understand it now. And I can praise him for it. And there's still times when I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> and I have to be careful with that. And that's why I hold on to this Spurgeon quote, because it doesn't puzzle him anymore because he gave up his mind to believing both. That's my heart. That's what I want to do. Lord, you have mercy and you are compassionate and you are gracious and you call people to yourself and you offer yourself. And yet at the same time, you choose and, and, and you, 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 before the foundations of the world, you chose me. That's amazing. I don't deserve that. And so all I can do is praise him for it. That's where we need to get to. And I will continue to grow in this. And I pray that you will as well. And if you walk out of here this morning, not happy with this, a little uncomfortable, it's okay to wrestle with this a little bit. It's okay to want to instead pursue the scriptures and ask the Lord, help me understand. Let's pray as we close this morning, ask God's help in all of these things. Father, we thank you for the privilege to sit and hear your word. Thank you for the story of the Exodus that you have provided to be remembered, and not just because of the fantastic wonders that you have committed, Lord, but because you are the one that did the wonders, because you are the one who's all-powerful. We know that Pharaoh set himself up as God against you, and in your divine justice, he was punished for that. In your divine justice, so was all of Egypt. But in your divine mercy, you offered opportunities for those to believe and to, to follow and to be part of your people. And it's an amazing story. All of your attributes on display at the same time. Father, may we give you glory this morning for all that you've done, all that you continue to do, all that you've done through the life of Christ and the, the work on the cross, how you've drawn us as your people to yourself, and that we are secure in your hands. None will be lost. Thank you, Father, for challenging us with difficult things at times. We know that part of the sanctifying process, being made holy, requires that we sin less, requires that we give up more of ourselves, requires that we decrease, Lord, so that you might increase in our life. We can't do that apart from your word. We are sanctified by the truth. The truth is, is your word. And so, Lord, as we read and as we are uncomfortable or don't understand, please give us help to understand to the best that we can. Help us to understand the things that are revealed to us and to be at peace and to submit ourselves to the things that we can't fully grasp. Please bring disciplers in our life. Bring others who can help walk with us so that we're not left by ourselves on a Sunday morning wandering around, not sure what to do. Lord, I pray that we would live in communities you've called us, that we might learn to obey you. We might grow in maturity through the reading of your word and studying together and praying together. Thank you so much for the doctrine of election. Thank you so much for divine sovereignty that you possess. Thank you that you're in control and that we can rest in that and that we can praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.